16 through 32. And if you need a, a Bible, you can find a black one in the pews in front of you or maybe under you. Um, and that's page 852, I believe, of those black pew Bibles. Well, as you're turning there, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! You know, they're striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. There is something deeply sobering about the account of the cross in each of the Gospels. The thought of the cross can be overwhelming, even as many of us have become desensitized to violence through overexposure in various forms of media. The thought of Jesus' crucifixion is still extremely sobering. Thinking about everything that Jesus physically suffered at the cross is a humbling and it should be a moving experience for the Christian. Whenever I read of the crucifixion in the Gospels, I personally feel a weight in my soul as I think about all that Jesus experienced for us. I tend to slow down as I read those parts of the Bible. 
it's always just felt like, like I'm in holy territory. Often my mind is drawn into thinking about how much it must have hurt Jesus physically to die for us. I sometimes think of what it would feel like to be lashed with a whip. I imagine what it would feel like for nails to go through my hands and feet. Think of what it would feel like to be suspended in the air trying to, to hold myself up. But what has struck me as I've read the Gospel of Mark is how subdued Mark is regarding the physical suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross. He mentions the physical difficulties that Jesus went through, but, but he doesn't dwell on them at all. He doesn't emphasize the beatings Jesus endured. He doesn't really tell us about the horrors of being crucified. Instead, Mark focuses on the complete humiliation of Christ by those around him and the devastating spiritual separation that Jesus experienced from his Father in heaven. This morning, we're going to consider the first part of Jesus' crucifixion as recounted by Mark. Next time, we'll see how Jesus was forsaken by his Father for us. But today, we're going to see how he was humiliated. And the overarching message of this passage in Mark 15 is that Jesus was mocked and he was humiliated at the cross for us. As we enter into the scene that unfolded at Calvary, it should be impossible for us to ignore the deep love of our Savior that led and held him on that cross for us. And it should become clear that his willingness to sacrifice himself there in our place was and, and continues to be antithetical to the values of this world. What we find in these verses is the magnificent love of God. A love that is willing to suffer through mockery and pain and insults in order to bring salvation to the world. We're going to take this passage in three parts. First, we're going to look at the humiliation of the king. And then we'll ponder the misery of the crucifixion. And finally, we'll look at the irony of the insults. The humiliation of the king, the misery of the crucifixion, and the irony of the insults. First, the humiliation of the king. Last time we saw that Jesus had been condemned to be crucified by the Roman governor Pilate at the beginning of Mark chapter 15. And this was against Pilate's own better sense, but he made the decision because he was more concerned about satisfying the crowd and preserving his own political position than doing what was morally right. And Mark told us in verse 15 of chapter 15 that he had Jesus scourged. And that itself was a horrifying experience for anyone to go through. The Romans were, were notorious for their lack of restraint in these scourgings. And in many instances, the lashings were so bad that the scourgings themselves turned lethal. And Jesus was one of the survivors, though. And his life was sustained so that he could be delivered up to be crucified, as he himself had predicted. Now... In verse 16, 
we pick up the narrative after that scourging. Mark writes, and the soldiers, that is the Roman soldiers of Pilate, led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. Well, the palace here is Herod the Great's, or is likely Herod the Great's old palace in West Jerusalem. It was a grand structure consisting of two main buildings situated on the, the north and south sides with this large courtyard between them. And this is where Pilate probably stayed as he visited Jerusalem for the feast. This is where he likely heard the accusations levied against Jesus on Friday morning by the chief priests. We aren't told by the gospel writers exactly where Jesus was scourged. But Mark informs us that after that scourging, he found himself back inside the palace grounds. Perhaps in the main courtyard. And he was met by a whole battalion of soldiers. A battalion consisted of 600 soldiers. Some believe that only those on duty were present. And and it's possible that was the case. But Mark emphasizes that this was the whole battalion. So either way, it was a large number of soldiers. And Herod's palace would have easily accommodated them all since it was located on over four acres of land. And this group of hundreds of military men decided to have some twisted fun with Jesus, the supposed king of the Jews. In, in verse 17, we learn that they, they clothed him in a purple cloak. Matthew 27, 28 actually tells us it was scarlet, and that very well may be the case, but it was likely an old military cloak that had been faded by the sun, and if you think about it, it was mingled with the fresh blood on Jesus' torn up back, and so it likely looked purple as well. And because of its purple appearance, it was deemed a perfect item to mock this alleged member of Jewish royalty. Not only did those soldiers mock Jesus with a cloak, but they also made a crown of thorns for him. And in the context, it seems like they just wanted to ridicule Jesus with it, but those prickly thorns probably also hurt them as they penetrated his brow, creating channels of blood that dripped down the face of our Lord. And note that those thorns were the same thorns that God told Adam would be brought forth from the earth because of his sin and the curse in Genesis 3.18. Listen to what God said to Adam back in Genesis 3. He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have Eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You When those foolish soldiers made that crown of thorns, it was probably just a, a silly prop to them. It was a silly prop meant to mock. But when Jesus wore that crown... Appointed to the fact that he, as the second Adam, would take upon himself the curse for us. Jesus wore the curse. He wore that crown of thorns for us. The mockery of Jesus' royal status continued in verse 18. It says, and they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. Instead of hail Caesar, 
they cried out, Hail, King of the Jews, and they were striking his head with a reed. John 19, 3 tells us that they were striking him with their hands as well, and spitting on him, and they were kneeling down in homage to him. You can almost imagine the perverse laughter that was echoing through those palace grounds on Friday morning. Grown men kneeling in mock worship. Feigned adoration of the pitiful king of the Jews. Dressed in old rags. Bloodied all around. Spittle dripping down his face. Jesus was humiliated by these soldiers. And when they got bored of the scene they had created, Mark tells us in verse 20 that the soldiers stripped him of the purple cloak. They, they ripped off the back of Jesus the cloak on which the blood of his lashings had likely coagulated. They revealed all his open wounds, only to clothe him again with his own clothes for a moment, probably as a concession to the Jewish aversion to public nakedness. And this is a humbling and difficult scene to take in. Our, our Lord was brought so low, but he endured it all in order to fulfill the plan which had been set for him long ago. He fulfilled the words of Isaiah 56, which, which says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This was the humiliation of our king. Next, I want you to see the misery of the crucifixion. The humiliation of the king. Next, the misery of the crucifixion. Look with me at the end of verse 20. Mark writes there, and they let him out to crucify him. And that's all Mark really tells us about the crucifixion. We get a few additional details in the verses that follow, but as I said earlier, Mark doesn't describe the, the manifold horrors of what it meant to be crucified. And that might have been in part because his Roman readers would have been very aware of what a crucifixion entailed. They had a lot of that background knowledge. But because we're a bit further removed from, or much further removed from that time, it's helpful for us to understand a little bit about what it meant for Jesus to be crucified. And, and I don't want to overemphasize the physical sufferings of our Lord, but as a 21st century citizen, I don't want you to underestimate it either. Crucifixion was described by the Roman statesman Cicero as the most cruel and horrifying punishment. It was Rome's way of creating terror among her, among her subjects. Crucifixions were usually located strategically on well-traveled roads so that people would see criminals hanging in the sky and being tortured and punished for their crimes. It, it was such an appalling kind of, of punishment that Roman citizens were exempt from it. That's why Paul, who was a Roman citizen, is traditionally understood to have been beheaded instead of crucified like his fellow apostle Peter was. Crucifixion involved having your extremities nailed to wooden beams, square iron spikes would penetrate between the radius and ulna of the forearm or through the wrist bones, would sever the median nerve 
sending acute pain up through the arms and shoulders of victims. Nails could have gone through the front metatarsal bones of the feet. But the one known victim of crucifixion from a 1968 excavation that has been discovered had nails through both heels that were then attached to the sides of the the vertical cross beam. How long a crucifixion would last was often determined by how severe the scourging before it was. Sometimes men could hang for several days on their crosses before dying. We know that Jesus must have been in pretty bad shape, though, because his crucifixion only took hours. It's been studied, but also debated how people actually died on the cross. Some think it's because of shock, others asphyxiation, and some heart failure. It was probably any or, or all of those in some combination. The cross was a spectacular display of shame. It was degrading. And that's why it was so shocking for, for the Jewish people to think of their Messiah as a crucified one. That, that was the great foolishness of the cross. For the wo- Messiah... For the deliverer of the Jews to be crucified was just incomprehensible to most people. But this was the kind of death that Jesus had been prepared to die. It was the kind of death that he himself predicted and that the scripture, especially passages like Psalm 22, which Michael read from earlier in our call to worship, also foretold. And so... With all that in mind, we can, we can look now at what happened on the road to the cross. And John 19, 17 tells us that Jesus carried his own cross. He would have probably just been carrying the, the horizontal beam on his back as the vertical one was usually already set up at the side of the crucifixion. But even so, those vertical beams could easily weigh over 75 pounds And because of all that Jesus had already gone through, a night of desperate prayer, being arrested in Gethsemane, struck in the presence of Caiaphas, hit by temple guards while blindfolded, spat upon, scourged, and mocked, as we've seen by the soldiers of Pilate, he was unable to continue. And so the Roman soldiers needed to figure out how to get him to the location of his death. And using their authority to order subjects in their empire to perform various tasks, verse 21 of Mark 15 tells us that they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, this man named Simon was from Africa. Cyrene is in modern-day Libya. And he was traveling into the city proper of Jerusalem. We don't know too much about him, but we do know from Acts 2.10 and Acts 6.9 that there was a Jewish population in Cyrene. There was a synagogue there, and men from that region were in Jerusalem during Pentecost. So Simon may have come into town for Passover. But on his way into the, the, the city, God put something else on his agenda for the day. He was called upon to take up the cross of Jesus and to follow him. And though we don't know much else about Simon, the beautiful grace of the gospel peeks through in this short little verse about him. Verse 21. 
In the midst of such misery and suffering, Mark seems to give us a strand of gospel hope. What do I mean by that? Well, it's very interesting that Mark gives us not only the name of Simon, but he also gives us the name of his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Why? They don't show up anywhere else in the gospel. So why call them out? Well, traditionally, it's been understood that, <clears throat> excuse me, it's been understood that Mark wrote his gospel to those living in Rome. So it seems here that Mark was writing to people who already were familiar with Alexander and Rufus. And he seems to be pointing out to his readers that the dad of their friends, Alex and Rufus, was Simon, the man who carried the cross of Jesus. And I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, 13. Romans 16, 13. Just turn with me there for a moment. This is Paul's letter to those in Rome. And Paul was writing at least a couple decades after the death of Jesus. Now, now notice what Paul writes in Romans 16.13. Paul writes, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, is this the same Rufus that Mark mentions in his gospel? There's, there's no other Rufus mentioned in the New Testament. And this Rufus is living where? Where is Paul writing? Rome. The same place that many believe Mark intended his gospel to go. And the timing would fit. We don't know how old Simon's son Rufus was when Jesus died, but he certainly would have been an adult by the time Paul was writing. And so it's highly likely that Rufus became a faithful follower of Christ. And, and you'll notice in Romans 16, 13, that his mother was also a supporter of Paul. And so in the sovereign and kind plan of God, it seems that he allowed Simon, a Jew from Africa, to meet Jesus on the road to the cross so that he might bear that cross. And it seems that Simon was so moved by the events of that day that he would decide to take up his own cross and follow Jesus with his family from then on. Even in the midst of misery, the humiliated son of God collapsing under the weight of the cross, even in the midst of that mercy, the, mer- the misery, the mercy of God still shines. Friends, church, You may be going through a difficult time in life right now. You might be feeling miserable. It may have been very hard for you to come to church today. And I don't want you to forget that in the midst of misery, God's mercy is always present. I don't know how God will show his kindness to you, but do not despair, for he is still with you. And he may reveal his mercy to you In an unexpected way. That's what we see from this little verse about Simon the Cyrene. Even as Jesus was battered down by the burden of the cross, God was doing his redemptive work. Now in verse 22, we learn that Jesus was finally brought to his crucifixion site. 
And Mark writes that they, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, and that's Aramaic, and it means place of a skull. The Latin word for skull is Calvaria, and that's how we got the English term Calvary. So when we say that Jesus died at Calvary, we're saying that he died at Golgotha, the place of a skull. And it was probably called that because it was, it was an area of land that looked a bit like a skull. We also learn in verse 23 that Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh. And it's possible that the soldiers offered this to him in mockery or, or to make him more compliant. But there's better reason to believe that Jesus was offered this drink by some women. Luke 23, 27 tells us that, that women were present mourning and lamenting for Jesus as he went to the cross. And we know from the Mishnah that it was a common pra- practice for Jewish women in Jerusalem to give those being executed a strong drink to help deaden their consciousness. This is also in line with Proverbs 31, 6 through 7, which says, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So Jesus was offered a drink, likely by some women, that would help him in the midst of his misery and distress to take the edge off all his pain. But notice what Mark writes. He writes in verse 23, but he did not take it. He didn't take it. Jesus was committed to feeling the full brunt of the pain he had been ordained to suffer. Now, I'm not saying you can't take Advil or, or Tylenol when you're sick or um, get an epidural when you're in labor. You know, medications when taken in moderation and carefully are a common grace that God grants us in this world. God's word also advocates for the giving of strong drink to those in distress, as we read Proverbs 31. But what Jesus teaches us when he turned down that wine is that he was not only willing, but he was also committed to experiencing the pain of being our substitute to the fullest. And it tells us that if you ever feel like no one can sympathize with your pain, you're wrong. I might not be able to understand what you're going through. Your friends might not. Your family might not. But Jesus experienced the deepest levels of abandonment and physical suffering and unfair mistreatment on his way to the cross. And he did not blunt the sharpness of any of that pain. He felt it all so that he could be a sympathetic high priest for you. And in the midst of all that pain, he still went to the cross in order to bring forgiveness and salvation to us. Jesus knows your pain more than even you know. Let's continue on. In verse 24, we learn that Jesus' garments were divided up by lots among the soldiers as they crucified him. This was in fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. That means that Jesus was clothed on the road to the cross, but when he was lifted up, he was lifted up in the shame of his nakedness perhaps with just a loincloth over him. Mark also tells us in verse 25 that it was the third hour when they crucified him. The day started at 6 a.m., so that means it was around 9 a.m. when Jesus was hung. 
And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And, and John tells us that this inscription was written in three languages. Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. It was written so all might understand and see. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. The word robber used to describe these two men can also mean something more serious, like revolutionary. And we know that these men wouldn't have been crucified if their crime was simple theft. They were criminals worthy of capital punishment. And it's very possible that they were associated with the murderer Barabbas, who was released instead of Jesus earlier that morning. And it is with these two convicted criminals that Jesus spent his last hours on earth. You'll also notice in your Bibles that verse 28 is probably missing. Or there's a, a footnote about a verse that talks about Jesus being numbered with the transgressors. And that is a true statement. Jesus was crucified with known transgressors. But that specific verse isn't present in the better and earlier manuscripts that have been discovered over the years. So many people believe it was incorrectly added at one time by a, by a scribe. As he recalled a very similar verse in Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. As we reach the end of this portion of Mark's gospel, we see what a miserable state Jesus was in. Physically exhausted and broken, yet unwilling to dull his pain. Left with no physical possessions, not even the clothes on his back. Abandoned by most of his followers to be accompanied by two condemned criminals. Jesus was crucified for us. The humiliation of the king, the misery of the crucifixion. Finally, let's look at the irony of the insults. The irony of the insults. In verse 29, we see that as Jesus hung on the cross, he was mocked by those who were simply passing by. They derided him, they wagged their heads at him. And they shouted the same false accusation that had been offered up against him back at the house of Caiaphas in Mark 14.58. They said, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. These onlookers were thinking that Jesus had no opportunity now to destroy the temple and to rebuild it as they thought he had claimed he would do. So they contemptuously called upon him to save himself and come down from the cross. But they didn't understand that Jesus was never talking about the physical temple in John 2. He was talking about the temple of his body. And he promised that if they destroyed it, if they killed him, it would be raised in three days. Little did they know that their insult was actually coming true. How ironic. By staying on the cross, Jesus was allowing the temple of his body to be destroyed in order that it might be rebuilt again in three days. Next, we see in verse 31 that the chief priests and the scribes also had their own insults. But instead of hurling them at Jesus, they spoke pridefully to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Notice that these religious leaders recognized Jesus' power to save. They could not deny his miracles. He did save others. But to them, those saving miracles would never be enough. They claimed that if Jesus came down, they would believe in him. But that was a lie. 
If Jesus had actually come down, I imagine they probably would have just grabbed a mallet from the Roman soldiers and nailed him right back up to that cross. They were never going to accept a Christ, a Messiah like Jesus. They wanted a Messiah to come and rule and deliver and affirm their view of their world and their interpretations of Scripture. But Jesus was not that kind of man. He never came to save himself or to bring earthly glory to the Jewish people. Instead, he came to give himself up so that others might be saved through him and God might receive the glory for his perfect plan of redemption. The irony of their insult was that Jesus stayed on that cross not because he couldn't get off, but because he came to save others. And it wasn't those two nails that held him to those wooden beams. It was the very love of God that kept him hanging on that cross. And then at the end of verse 32, Mark writes, Those who are crucified with him also reviled him. And this is perhaps the ultimate shame. Death row criminals were also reviling Jesus. Luke 23, 39 tells us that one of them shouted, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The ones who deserve their punishment ironically insulted the one who didn't. Now Luke 23 tells us that one of those robbers eventually changed his mind. And and through that, Jesus demonstrated once again that he was still able to save on the cross. But at this point in time, Jesus was just being piled upon by one group after another. Those passing by said, save yourself and come down from the cross. The chief priest said, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. One of the criminals railed, save yourself and us. They all assumed that the path to salvation was self-preservation. They all called upon Jesus to save himself. But by staying on that cross, Jesus showed us that that was not his priority. He had different values and goals. By staying on the cross, Jesus showed that the Christian life turns the values of this world on their head. We learn from Jesus' life that in him, life in him, it means dying to self. We learn that the wisdom of God is foolishness to men, that, that to find our life, we need to be willing to lose it. That the strong in this world understand that they are actually weak. That to be first is to be last. And the world may hurl its insults upon us as well. They may mock us for the decisions we make because They don't align with their values or priorities. They may wag their heads at us. But as a Christian, your decisions should look different from non-Christians. You may have more kids. You may get married earlier. You may live in smaller homes. You may spend your, your weekends and your weeknights differently. You may keep your kids out of certain activities. Deny your strong inner feelings in order to be obedient to God. You may make less money. You may spend time with those who offer little to you in return. You may give up your vacations for gospel work. You may refuse to identify with the crowd. You should look different from those around you. But know that this is how Jesus lived his life. Not different just to be different but different because his life was aligned with the will of God 
And the will of God is fundamentally different than the will of sinful and selfish men. These men hurled insults at Jesus on the cross, but they didn't realize how ironic their insults really were. Jesus allowed himself to be delivered into the hands of Roman soldiers as a criminal in order that we who have committed crimes of sin against God might be delivered from the torment of hell. He allowed himself to be humiliated by those same soldiers wearing a a crown of, of cursed thorns in order that he might take upon himself our curse and we might receive glory and honor in God's kingdom through faith. Jesus was stripped of clothes and displayed as an object of naked shame in order that we might be clothed in his perfect righteousness as we stand before God on the last day. Jesus refused the offer of wine so that we, he might experience the full weight of his suffering in order that we might have a high priest who understands everything we will go through in this life. Jesus was hung between two criminals. He was deemed a transgressor so that we might be deemed innocent. He experienced the most inhumane kind of death on the cross so that we might experience the most wonderful kind of life in eternity. Jesus was repeatedly insulted and derided so that we might one day hear the affirming voice of God say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus was mocked. He was humiliated at the cross for us. He demonstrated how much he loves us through what he endured. He did not save himself. He did not come down. Not because he couldn't, but because he wouldn't. So that we would be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so humbled and sobered whenever we consider Jesus and what he endured at the cross for us. Oh, Father, we, it's hard for us to comprehend the humiliation he experienced, the misery that he went through, the insults that were hurled upon him. But we praise him because he endured that all for us. Oh, Father, help us to realize that he can sympathize with us in our pain, Help us to realize that in the midst of all this misery, he is still able to save. And help us to see his wonderful love for us. A love that is so different than the sinful and selfish priorities of this world. We praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for the work that happened on the cross. We pray these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.